0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and envision the opportunities these trends create. We help them elevate the quality of their leadership and transform their organizations to build sustainable success and impact. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. And I am also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted to bring to you, recorded live at the International Leadership Association Conference 2019 in Ottawa, Canada, whose theme is Courage to Lead, a series of interviews. Next, you'll hear Cynthia Cherry, the president of ILA, to introduce the conference and 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 then I'll be back to introduce our guests.
2: International instability is only getting worse in today's world, and it cries out for a need for leadership. Hi there. This is Cynthia Cherry, President and CEO of the International Leadership Association. And the ILA has its mission to advance leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. At this year's global conference in Ottawa, our theme was Leadership, Courage Required. And it was a gathering of 1200 professionals from around the world to discuss share and explore the latest research teachings and best practices in leadership in this series ila fellow marine metcalf is the host of the 2019 series and you will hear from corporate leaders political leaders and the leading scholars and teachers grappling with the complex issues of today. I hope you will join me in exploring these complex issues in the 2019 series.
1: With us on the show today is the Right Honorable Kim Campbell. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Kim Campbell was the 19th and first female Prime Minister of Canada. She held cabinet portfolios that included the Minister of State for Indian Affairs, Minister of Justice and Attorney General, Minister of National Defense and Veterans Affairs. She served as Canadian Consul General in Los Angeles, taught at the Harvard Kennedy School, and chaired the Council of Women World Leaders. She served as International Women's Forum president and was a founding member and later secretary general of the Club of Madrid, an organization of former presidents and prime ministers who were democratically elected. As founding principal, she designed and launched a groundbreaking leadership program at the University of Alberta, the Peter Lougheed Leadership College. So I am just delighted to speak to you. And let me go back and
3: ask you to share the definition of Right Honourable. Ah, the Right Honourable is a title that uh, adheres to three positions in Canada, the Prime Minister, the Governor General, who is the Queen's representative, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. If you went to Great Britain, you would find it in the uh, top uh, 20 members of Cabinet, people who are all Privy Councillors, so it's a more common title there. And it just means the Very Honourable. It goes back to the old use of the word Right to mean very, you know, that's right nice of you, that's right kind of <laughs> you. Uh, and in some ecclesiastical positions, you have right reverence. So it just means the very honorable, when you translate it into French, I am la Très honorable, Kim Campbell. But in Canada, as I say, it is it is only a title of three positions. And one day I was in the Canadian Senate giving a presentation uh, to mark the 150th anniversary of Canada. And the chief justice at the time was a woman, Beverly McLaughlin, and a former governor general, Michaela Jean was there. Uh, And I'm the only woman who was prime minister. So we were three right honorables representing the three different positions that hold that title. So we got a picture. (laughs) It's historic. (laughs) So, Kim, I
1: am really looking forward to our conversation. And for listeners, we're going to talk about a range of topics from the 40 years of leadership experience you have running a country and launching a leadership program, so, so extending your pragmatic leadership experience into the academic space. And also, at a time when we are so divided in, in various sectors of our society, I'm really interested in the stories that you've shared with me about how you've built alliances that have held in difficult times. So let's jump
3: in. In your almost 40 years of leadership experience... It's actually, I have to tell you, that although I don't like to admit to being as old as I am, I was, elected, I was the first girl to be elected student council president of my high school in the spring of 1963. So it's even more than 40 years. Wow. Not so that's enough. 55 years. Yeah. <laughs> not that I'm
1: not good at math. <laughs> so in your 55 years of leadership experience,
3: what are you seeing the changes? Well, when I was a little girl, um, girls were able to do things if you were not seen to be carrying all the others along with you. Uh, People have always been willing to make exceptions. Mm. So if we don't think the girls are as smart as boys, well, maybe one or two are, or people of color or people from a different place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I was young, Actually, my mother raised my sister and me to believe that and to understand that girls could do anything but that it wasn't a universally accepted proposition. And we had a wonderful woman named Charlotte Witten, who was the first woman to be mayor of Ottawa who used to say that a woman had to be twice as good as a man in order to be thought half as good, but fortunately that was easy. <laughs> but when I was young, there was kind of a general assumption that generally speaking, women were not as, as good at, at, as men in areas of leadership or as mathematicians or scientists or Mm -hmm. any of these things so that a few women excelled but not many we now know that that's not true Mm -hmm. that uh much research shows and, and historical research which is rediscovering women you know brilliant women mathematical geniuses and scientists mm-hmm. and you know you see the, the film uh, Hidden Figures about these yeah, three African American yeah. women who were fundamental to the development of of the space program in, in NASA mm-hmm. so these people are being rediscovered and changing people's perceptions of what women can do and I would say over the last 40 years that's been uh, or 55 years whatever mm-hmm. that's been a uh, a very important change, that we're rediscovering the women who've mm-hmm. been left out. I think Virginia Woolf once said that Anonymous is likely a woman, uh, there <laughs> those are people who don't get credit. But it's astonishing how many, for example, brilliant women scientists had to work as assistants in their husbands' labs, mm-hmm. were not able to give their own papers at, at meetings. So we lose this. The other thing I think that we know, aside from rediscovering the histories of real women who've been hugely important in many fields, is the research, particularly in the 90s, in social and cognitive psychology about how we think. And that helps us to understand that the way we think we think isn't really how we think and that our Mm -hmm. processing information is full of cognitive biases and implicit attitudes. And that also helps us to explain why women sometimes don't support women because... If we live in a society where women are not leaders and where they're only leaders if they're kind of exceptions, uh, women themselves may internalize this view that women mm-hmm. really aren't as good as men. They may exempt themselves. I certainly did. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know I would sort of think that I was as good as men, but you know what about all the others? That My so sister sure. may not be. <laughs> Yeah, and so, but I think now that we understand the extent to which our thinking is is colored and shaped mm-hmm. by cognitive biases. Um, I think that gives us an opportunity to try and break through it, to become aware of it. So what else has changed
1: over the last 40 years?
3: Well, I think in light of what we understand, more women have simply come forward. i give you an example. When, when I was uh, in Parliament, I remember... And it wasn't before I think I, I ran for the leadership of my party. But I re- read a, an article about what kind of a woman could possibly be president of the United States, and she would have to be brunette. <laughs> Why assuming. does that matter? Well, I guess the blondes were you know blondes were in serious you know blonde. Mm-hmm. And you're blonde, them. so that yeah. So it's always Hillary Clinton and so are, that. you know and Margaret Thatcher wasn't particularly dark. I mean it's it kind of ridiculous. But I actually amuse young women when I say. When I was Prime Minister, I never wore trousers. Except maybe to go to an athletic event, I right? mm-hmm. always wore suits or dresses and mm-hmm. skirts with mm-hmm. pantyhose, etc. And I am very grateful to Hillary Clinton, who, as first lady, kind of normalized the pantsuit. I don't think she has great legs, and that's why, she <laughs> but she normalized the pantsuit. But also because when you're wearing a pantsuit, you're never in a situation sitting on the stage where you suddenly realize there's nothing, there's nothing protecting you, and you've got to sit with your knees clenched together for the whole uh, the whole panel. Um, But that she began and Laura. Bush did the same thing. So as first ladies, although they weren't in government, because Margaret Thatcher always dressed, you know, in sort of the traditional skirts, etc. I don't Mm -hmm. think I ever saw a picture of her wearing trousers. And Angela Merkel now, who's taken it, I mean Angela Merkel has this huge wardrobe of infinite numbers of dark pants and colored blazers. And that's (laughs) her and that is her uniform. And so when we see the change over that period of time, the ability of women to be comfortable. I was going and, to say, it's more and, than
1: wardrobe. It's about comfort and equality yeah. that I am not constrained right. in my movement. Hmm.
3: So, I mean, it's quite remarkable because when I was prime minister, I could not have worn Angela Merkel's wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Um, think I was a little thinner at that time. <laughs> and we're both wearing
1: slacks, yeah, by the way. Well, but,
3: but it is really, it is very important because one of the, the things that we, we talk about, you know, sort of the, the, um, uh, the misogyny of wardrobes, you know, if women are expected to wear high heels and short skirts, you know, aside from the fact that they're kind of vulnerable to, to physical attack, it's a very much uh, a playing into a, a sexual stereotype. Mm -hmm. And clever women are many people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was Prime Minister of my country doesn't mean I don't have you know, romantic relationships. I have a wonderful husband. I have a sex life. I have, you mm-hmm. know, I'm all these kinds of things, but I don't feel I need to dress professionally the way I would dress if I wanted to go out for a social occasion and be alluring, mm-hmm. because the, the the dynamic is totally different. What I want to achieve, uh, and also being alluring doesn't mean you can't make intelligent conversations. <laughs> so, you know, things, I mean, you know, a good-looking <laughs> man. We don't expect him to sort of go. Duh. We expect him to, you know, also carry his head. The, of the George Clooney's and yes, such yes, are. Yes. are allowed to be smart also so I think that all of those things have changed quite remarkably since I started out that there should be more women Mm -hmm. uh, not enough and there are still significant barriers because often you get pushback. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know when when men are the default category I'll give you an example Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, when he was, Justin Trudeau, when he was first elected, uh, appointed a cabinet that was 50% women. Uh, He was the fifth leader, I think, in the world to do this. Uh, Zapatero in Spain had done it and others had done it. And early in his term, he was visiting another country and the leader of that country said to him, why did you appoint a cabinet that was 50% women, why didn't you just appoint on merit? And he said, if I'd appointed on merit, I'd have had more women. That's interesting. And, you know, you start to think (laughs) about it, because we assume that somehow, if you're appointing women, you're making a sacrifice, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're Mm -hmm. bringing in people who maybe don't deserve to be there. And it's this notion that men are the default category, that they're the ones who are really equipped to lead, that they are always competent. And, you know, some of them are extraordinary doofuses. (laughs) And... You know, and, and women can be too. And of course, we will mm-hmm. never be truly liberated until we can be a doofus without having it reflect on the rest of our <laughs> sex. But I think those, those are very important changes, I think, in my time as, a, as an adult uh, operating in the, in the public field.
1: You know, I love the idea that Trudeau would make the comment yeah. if it were truly on merit, there would be more women.
3: Mm-hmm. I helped... Uh, and friendly- incidentally, I know a lot of men who think that way. About a lot of things, you know, my husband is a company, he says the, the, the mm-hmm. women and his management are fabulous. I once, I chaired a, a foundation in Kiev and met with uh, people from the Canadian-Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce, Canadians who had gone to do business there and it was not so simple. And I met a man who said, I only do business with companies run by women. Oh, that's you know? curious. Because they're honest, they deliver, they're very effective. It is, the men are hopeless. but so <laughs> I don't want to sound like we're anti-male no but I think I think that there are a lot of people who recognize from their real experience as opposed to any kind of mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. sitting back or just theorizing mm-hmm. that women really do uh, produce that women are smart that they are often uh, you know less concerned about looking good than with being good mm-hmm. and doing a good job and we are
1: many of us socialized in ways that don't align with what the power base has promoted Mm -hmm.
3: so we look and sound different uh, Mm -hmm. from others who have done these jobs but that is not a diminution Mm -hmm. uh, of the quality in fact if anything it sometimes is is an augmentation of what is brought to the the job Mm -hmm. because of uh, the breadth of our experience and the way we see things and our ability to understand certain dynamics you know I, I sometimes feel that you know someday, if women are totally equal and we don't have any, any discrimination or any barriers, you know, we might turn out to be jerks and privileged and whatever. Some, uh, but <laughs> some will. But at this stage, it's it's difficult for us uh, to avoid the reality of, of learning to deal with exclusion or low expectations, mm-hmm. and it can often make us more empathetic and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although, the other side of that coin is, is Mary Catherine Bateson, who wrote in her book Composing a Life, she was Margaret Mead's daughter and she mm-hmm. became an academic dean, and she talked about uh, when she became, I can't remember if it was a department chair or a dean, doesn't matter, how men uh, that she worked with were angry if she wouldn't nurture them, that they expected that she was supposed to mother them. Hmm. And you, you don't expect a male department chair to be daddy. Uh, to nurture you. Uh, and if he gives you tough love and says, shape up, you mm-hmm. don't feel that that's somehow a terrible thing. But so, even when women get positions of authority, they are often encumbered by expectations of femaleness and still serving and supporting men um, in, a, in a particularly nurturing role. You know, it's interesting, this, you started with the,
1: the idea of bias, mm-hmm. that we all carry it, it's everybody pre-wired, as a, that we're a species of... I don't think beings. it's pre-wired, you I think, don't think, it's, it I think it it's absolutely
3: cultural. We okay. learn it, we learn it from the day we're born. You know, you take a baby out dressed in yellow, and people go, oh, what a cute baby, and the first thing they say, is it a boy or a girl? They don't know how to talk to it until they know what its sex is. Mm-hmm. And we... Absorb these attitudes uh, from childhood, and and by the time a child starts school, he or she has a very nuanced understanding of what it means to be male and female in their society, and different based on the country. Yeah, and you know hugely different, and where they are in any given society, the kind Mm -hmm. of family they have, their social class, Mm -hmm. whatever, the role models that they have, what people do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your journey
1: to political office. You talked about being class president in 1963. Where did you go from 1963
3: to becoming prime minister? Well, just to to roll back a bit, I am the daughter of two war veterans. My dad was in the Canadian Army and uh, fought in the Italian campaign, was wounded and Mm -hmm. came back. My mother horrified her mother by enlisting in the Navy and becoming a Wren. And training as a wireless telegrapher and uh, tracking the uh, the. Uh Emissions of German U-boats in the North Atlantic and Gulf of St. Lawrence, because of course submarines can't communicate underwater. They have to surface. They did da da. They radio. And my mother was part of a, cr- a group of, of w- young women, and they had to be young because they sat long watches. Who sat scanning to intercept these messages. And mm-hmm. if two messages could be inter- message could be intercepted by two people. By triangulation, you could locate the uh, submarine. And German submarines came right up off Quebec City during World War II. So when I was a little girl. World War II was, I was born after the war, but I mean, it was mm-hmm. on TV, everything. I mean, it was, it was the big event of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the fact that both my parents had been in uniform in World War II made me feel that, you know, both men and women did serve. And I was fascinated by it and I read books about it and I read books about the Holocaust. And I really, I wanted to do something. I wanted to make a contribution so that this would not happen again. Hmm. And if you asked me when I was a teenager what I wanted to be, I said I'd like to be the first woman Secretary General of the UN. That's a very Canadian thing to want to be. <laughs> American <laughs> kids don't want to be that, but Canadian kids do. I think I wanted to be an astronaut. Well, but I wanted to do something bigger than my life, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that would help to make the world better,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and avoid war, etc. But I, mm-hmm. my, my parents weren't political, I mean, mm-hmm. they voted, but they weren't political. Um, And I lived in Vancouver, so I was far from the national center of Mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really think about politics until I got I mean, when I became student council president, that wasn't even so much about political. The year before, when I was in 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 grade uh, grade ten, a a girl girl had run for school president and she didn't win. And people say, "Well, a girl can't win." And I thought, "Well, that's not right." So, uh, at the end of my year in grade eleven, because it was for going to grade twelve, I ran. And there there were two boys. We were girls and boys. That we were men and women. I guess young men and women. and I ran against two male uh, opponents, but I got more than fifty percent of the vote. And part of it was, I wondered if girls could do it. And mm-hmm. uh, and I liked organizing things, and I liked, mm-hmm. you know, and I was sort of the person that would take responsibility for things if nobody would do something. And I said, well, I guess I could do it. And, you know, I organize something or make it happen. So. That was really, I mean, it wasn't um, my views about the world and my concern about world peace and that kind of stuff was kind of independent from my running for school president because I don't think school president is the vehicle which will help you <laughs> for World <laughs> War III. Um, so, and then when I, I went to, uh, to university and I did my graduate work in Soviet politics and I was a student at the London School of Economics and um, I spent three months uh, on a study tour of the USSR mm-hmm. in 1972, and that was incredibly interesting, and it, it was very interesting to go there because, um, and I studied Soviet politics, because actually I was interested in the whole question of social engineering, mm-hmm. and what I looked at, when I researched was about what happened in the USSR after de-Stalinization, what happens when you discredit you know, Khrushchev's secret speech, you know, de- discrediting Stalin in 1956 and then again 1960. Uh, Sixty-one. Um, you know what? What changes did they make? Given that mm-hmm. they were undermining mm-hmm. one of the uh, pillars of their so-called legitimacy. But in traveling in the in, through the USSR, uh, it was an extraordinary experience and uh, very much influenced. You know my sense of the waste that comes in those kinds of societies and my commitment hmm. to democracy with all of its imperfections. Uh, I just thought this was a very uh, you know, not the model that really had, had much of a future, and of course that turned out to be true. So when I went back and was teaching um, at the University of British Columbia, I was at, by that time married, and my then husband, who was a mathematics professor, uh, was asked to run for the school board, and he got involved in the school board. And I had a student who was the president of the Young Progressive Conservatives in Canada, and I, and uh, he gave me some speeches of the current uh, progressive conservative leader, Robert Stanfield. And I thought they were very wise and thoughtful. And I said, you know, I've thought of going to politics but I uh, someday, but I don't have anything to do with the party. And he said, well, don't get involved in a party. He said, if you want to go into politics, become a star. And what he meant was become somebody that parties would go to Rather than you go to them, become the person they want. And it was interesting because a woman had run for leadership at the Progressive Conservative Party, Flora MacDonald, and she had spent a lot of time working within the structure of the party, and people just couldn't see her in any other way. Mm. So, anyway, so make a long story short, I ran for municipal politics, I ran for school board, uh, became very well-known, and that sort of made me a star, made me mm-hmm. somebody, and I, I served in the provincial legislature and resigned my seat there to run federally uh, in 1988 because the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement was the issue that was defining the election, and I very strongly supported it. So that is how I found myself in Ottawa. And it was interesting because I went into cabinet right away. Now partly that was because there were, you know, two ministers from my province who were not returned. One didn't run again oh, and the other one, other one okay. was defeated, so there were wasn't a sense of vacancy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that started you know, what was a meteoric is the wrong the wrong word, but was a very uh, successful Career as a minister. So I first served as the junior minister, of the Minister of State mm-hmm. for Indian Affairs. Then the next year I became the first woman to be Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, which was a very powerful position. Seven of my predecessors had been Prime Minister, had gone on to be Prime Minister, so it was a very important position. Uh, I'm still the only Canadian woman to have served as Minister of National Defense. Uh, Veterans Affairs was a separate portfolio when I held both of those portfolios at the time. So, you know. When I was when I was Minister of Justice, I uh, was responsible for the criminal law for the whole country. It's, mm-hmm. uh, in the United States, it's a state jurisdiction; in Canada, it's federal. And I dealt with very difficult issues: abortion, gun control, gay rights, uh, mm-hmm. among among many others. I rewrote the sexual assault laws, and uh, in doing so, had to work on difficult issues with a caucus that didn't all think alike. Mm-hmm. And because I managed to. Succeed in doing these things in ways that that didn't alienate people. That I was very inclusive, and even with people who didn't support my legislation, I never I never made enemies, or thought or, mm-hmm. know, people mm-hmm. were entitled to represent their constituents. So that's how uh, you know I, I found myself in a position in 1993 when uh, the prime minister said he was going to step down. Now, this was quite far along in our mandate, and normally. Uh, someone would step down earlier than that to give a successor mm-hmm. time but it was right in the last year of our mandate and so there was a great deal of support in the caucus for me uh, including uh, the evangelical caucus that, that uh, were very different for me on on many of the views but i'd worked very uh, respectfully with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was elected leader of the party. Unfortunately, we were right at the end of our mandate. Now, when you say our mandate, what does that in mean? In a parliamentary system, you're elected for a maximum of five years. And normally you call an election sometime in the fourth year. Okay. We're now, we now have fixed period elections, but that's only a matter of statute. could be changed any time. And, of course, a government can fall in a parliamentary system. If you know, We now have a minority government in Canada. If the prime minister can't get support and the government falls, You either have to have another election or another party can try and form a government. So in a way, there are ways that that undermine this notion of fixed periods. But you normally would never go into the fifth year of of an election, of a mandate. And we were halfway through the fifth year when the prime minister announced that he would be stepping down and that in the following June, there would be a convention. So when I became leader of the party, I had four months before I, I had to call an election. And given that my predecessor was the most unpopular prime minister in the history of Canadian polling, I mean, he's been much resuscitated since, you know, Mm -hmm. time heals all wounds, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and people have a different view. Uh, So even though in the summer of 1993, although Gallup said that I had the highest approval rating for a prime minister in 30 years, I didn't have time to turn our fortunes Mm -hmm. around. There had been a fragmentation of parties, a new party formed in Quebec that had taken some of our Quebec vote, uh, sort of uh, the Reform Party in Western Canada, which was... uh, of a West, we had started out as Western separatists, but were very, much more right-wing than we were, they took some of our votes. So it was a five-party race. There was no time for me to govern long enough to try to Mm -hmm. make a new coalition, and we lost the election. So on that
1: note, we're going to get a break. I invite our listeners to think about when was a time that you have moved toward a goal and not yet reached it? So how often do we move towards something and that, that we falter, do we give up or do we, do we try again? So we will be right back. This is Maureen Metcalf and the Right Honorable Kim Campbell. And Maureen Metcalf and we're talking about Kim's political journey and before we went on break you talked about the first election
3: and that you did not prevail. Well that was that was my only chance because uh, my party was quite decimated in that election. There are people who talk about something called the glass cliff that women often get a chance to lead uh, when in in no hope situations Mm -hmm. Um, I think in fairness to myself that was not why I was chosen leader I mean it might have been part of people's view that since my predecessor was very unpopular that Mm -hmm. you know changing the, the sex of the leader was a pretty significant departure but when I went to Ottawa it was interesting because even as a junior minister of Indian Affairs I was invited to speak in people's writings or what we call constituencies mm-hmm. or you know, mm-hmm. writings, ridings uh, at their annual meetings, etc., and people would say to me after when Mulrooney steps down, you're going to be our next leader. So this was several years before the mm-hmm. actual mm-hmm. it actually happened. So I think there were a lot of people who did see me as a future leader, but the timing was just. Terrible, because whoever had won the leadership and whoever led us would have—I don't think—would have won. I think, oddly enough, I think if, if Brian Mulroney had stayed on, he might have done better. Because I think when you're an unpopular leader, there's a way you can—you can defend your your yourself. Mm-hmm. I never criticized him, but he could have defended himself. And also, I think he could have taken on Jean Chrétien in a different way from the way mm-hmm. that I could have, because they were both from Quebec. And anyway, but—but but I don't think he would have won, and then so he didn't mm-hmm. want to run again. But But I think what is interesting is that when we look at the experience of women as leaders, uh, one of the things that happens is that if you have a failure, you don't get a second chance. And recently, I participated in a program with, uh, I think, 11 of the the 12 or 13 women who have been premiers of our provinces and territories. Mm -hmm. I'm still the only woman who's been prime minister of the whole country. And the program was called No Second Chances. Uh, and it talked about the fact that that you know, many of these women were quite wonderful. They're quite different, and they came from different mm-hmm. parties, etc. But for many of them, the experience of leading their provincial governments was not very happy because they found, uh, you know, I think if, if your if your party is doing well, then men want the role, want the position. Mm-hmm. If it's mm-hmm. not doing well, then they are prepared to fob it off on you and then blame you if you don't pull a rabbit out of the hat. Mm-hmm. So I think. But I think in, in many fields, not just in politics, um, women do not get second chances. You know, do we you, not we, get or do we not take? Well, you can't always just take them. And that's why I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, for example, if you lose an election and, uh, and your party is decimated, uh, I mean, there really wasn't a role for me. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't stay on as leader. Mm-hmm. Um, So sometimes there isn't an opportunity. Now, I certainly did have a next act. What I did was, you know, I figured out, you know, who was I and Mm -hmm. what were the issues that brought me into politics and what did I care about? And I set about constructing a life, a post political life. And uh, Peter Lowen, who's the head of the School of Public Policy at the University of Toronto, said to me one day, you know, you've had the most uh, significant. Post-political life of any of our former prime ministers, and I'm not sure that's true uh, because I think most of them try to find constructive things. But uh, I mean, I was pleased that he thought he thought that Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I think that is important as a message to other women. And my sister has often said this that perhaps your greatest uh, contribution to women in Canada is about that you've survived. Mm -hmm. And I see this. You know, we you and I are at a a conference uh, in Canada. And a lot of women say to me, you know, it was so important to me when mm-hmm. you became prime minister and thank you for what you did. And they don't see the fact that I lost the election in 93 as the end of the story. They see it as having done something that was extremely difficult to do, which was a, to become the leader of a party that could form a government. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what you have to do to be prime minister. You can become leader of a party that can't form a government. And people will be happy to have you lead it. But if you if if it's a party that has the possibility of actually forming a government, the uh, the contention for the leadership will be very uh, fierce. Mm-hmm. And for a woman to become leader, you know, it, it's it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's but it's hard. And I'm the only one who's done it. But I think what is important is for for people to see me still leading a productive life, very much animated by the same principles that took me into politics in the first place, which is I'm very committed to the advancement of women. Remember, I wanted to be the first woman Mm -hmm. secretary-general of the UN. Still hasn't been one. Um, But also that I wanted to do something to make the world better. So I work with the Club of Madrid. I helped to create that organization. It's the largest forum of former democratically elected presidents and prime ministers. I served briefly as a secretary general, but I, I didn't believe it should be run by a member, so I got it up and running, and then it's been run by others, but I'm involved in it. We do programs around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, this is very important to me, and I held elected office at all three levels of government in Canada, which was kind of an amazing school of mm-hmm. democratic mm-hmm. politics at all three levels, and they're all important. Um, I helped to create the Council of Women World Leaders. And I was the uh, international president of the International Women's Forum for three years. So I've tried to find ways to to speak for women, but also to continue to learn. So one of the advantages of having uh, political retirement thrust upon me uh, by the Canadian electorate, was that I got a chance to go back to my social science roots and mm-hmm. start reading this remarkable body of literature that was growing in the 90s mm-hmm. in social and cognitive psychology about gender barriers, about cognitive biases, implicit attitudes, some of the dynamics that helped to explain to me things that had perplexed me. Mm-hmm. And where I think if people understand them, and women in particular understand them, it helps to gird them Mm-hmm. for the struggle and to understand that sometimes what they're facing is actually not personal. It's, it's part of a larger dynamic. Mm-hmm. You don't look or sound like anybody who's done that job mm-hmm. before. That was what I faced. So for me, the, for the Ottawa Press Gallery that covered national politics all the time, my uh, emergence mm-hmm. as Prime Minister was perhaps most stressful for them. And I had a reporter say to me, so was curling his lip and saying, I've known every prime minister since Lester Pearson. And the implication was, and you're no Lester Pearson. No, I wasn't. I was Kim Campbell. And I didn't look or sound like any of my mm-hmm. predecessors. I had a different physiognomy and a different way of speaking. And for people who are deeply imbued in the, you know, the, the preceding status quo, mm-hmm. you're a shock. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. A young woman spoke to me uh, the other day about... Leading a, a cybersecurity unit, or whatever, mm-hmm. and she, she's the only woman with 12 men. And I said, Yeah. And you don't look or sound like anybody who's done that job before. And you have to reprogram their expectations. Uh, and it's hard, because especially she was very youthful looking, although mm-hmm. she had 12 mm-hmm. years of experience. I mean, she wasn't a, a, a rookie. Uh, people, and that was the other thing too, when I was running for the leadership, there was a tendency to, to regard me as a rookie. and Uh, Because I was being elected at the end of my first term in Parliament, although, so finally I I got mad at this and about this, and I asked one of my assistants to do some research. And of the 18 men who preceded me as Prime Minister of Canada, only eight had more cabinet experience than I had. So, in the cosmic order of people who'd been Prime Minister, I was Mm -hmm. in the more experienced half. But because I was a woman and a youthful woman, I was, you know, in my mid 40s then, Mm -hmm. and, you know, had a young look. Um, it was easy to, you know, I mean, how do you discredit somebody? You're uncomfortable with her, but you would rather walk over hot coals than suggest that you are in any way sexist. So you look for other ways to validate your sense of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Well, she's a rookie, she's inexperienced. Well, no, not compared to other people who have taken mm-hmm. this job. Uh, you know, I, Pierre Trudeau had been in, uh, uh, in cabinet for a year. He'd served a year as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister and then one year as justice minister before he became leader and prime minister. You know, I had served almost five years in cabinet, including Mm -hmm. three years in the justice portfolio and a year in defense and whatever. So as a woman, as as, uh, Charlotte Witten said, a woman has to be twice as good as a man in order to be thought half as good. Uh, So you have to have more experience and Mm -hmm. do more things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the challenge, but I think when we understand that there are kind of cognitive biases that do that and our only way around them is not I mean we need to make people aware of them and call them out but it's also a matter of reprogramming people's expectations and, and that's their brains what, Yeah, but women have to be there to change the landscape I from which people get their
1: sense of how the world works I think that's one of the most important messages and one that I've really tried to reinforce with women, as we're emerging through our careers, is as soon as I leave the room, because I'm uncomfortable, I'm no longer present, I'm no longer in the power base. So we run technology programs, as an example, and there's been a lot of conversation about should we have women's and men's. No, as soon as we step out of the decision makers, we're not considered. And so creating our own special group, I think, Not that there is no value to it, because I do think it serves a role, but we have to be in the room, because the world is run largely still by men, so if we have special women's groups, at the exclusion of being in joint groups, I think we...
3: We lose the opportunity. Yeah, we have to be part of the mainstream. We are part of the mainstream. We have to push back on the idea that men are the default category. One of the things that also happens if you are a woman or some other non-prototypical person, maybe a racial minority or whatever, and you might think, well, in the organization I'll reach out to people like me and create some bonds of friendship Mm -hmm. and understanding. But very often you are seen by others as plotting or conspiring. Mm -hmm. like. Oh, what are you girls up to? I mean, how many times do women you know, we stand talking mm-hmm. together? Oh, what are you girls, you know, uh, dreaming up? What what mm-hmm. schemes are you doing? You can't just be standing talking about the know, political issues, yeah, there. Or, you know, or where to get your car fixed, or you know, mm-hmm. some issue that might you know, mm-hmm. that men can do. I remember years ago when I was teaching at the university, uh, walking past two young men in the department. Two, I mean, they were associate professors. Who were standing in the hallway talking about their kids. They were both reasonably new fathers. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Women could never get away with that. When you see the men talking mm-hmm. about their kids, everybody says, oh, isn't that dear? You know, they're such mm-hmm. devoted fathers. How great is that? But for a woman, you know, so you have all these other expectations mm-hmm. and things that people project onto you. If you're talking about your family, then you're not sufficiently focused on the job at hand or dedicated to your work, which is rubbish.
1: Well, so it raises the importance of allies, mm-hmm. that, that groups of whichever category we happen to be in are, are often less
3: powerful than a diverse yeah. collaborative group. Yeah, and I think that to the extent that you share a certain interests, like, for example, as the, the, the women in the film, Hidden Figures, you know, mm-hmm. that there were no, no bathrooms they could go to, I mean, you know, these are significant things. And in fact, when women started becoming more numerous in the House of Commons, mm-hmm. there weren't any women's washrooms. And they, they had to say, look, we need women's washrooms close to the chamber. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, oh, golly, well, who, huh? You know, who knew, who thought about it, you know? And mm-hmm. so, as a group, if you are discriminated against or dis- disadvantaged in some way as a group, then I think you do need to articulate those concerns. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that it is important uh, never to seed the ground. And it's funny, because sometimes women uh, don't like the idea of talking about power, like, you know, I'd I'd like to go into politics, but you know, it's all just about power, it's all just power games. And I say, yes, it is. Power is very real. That's what people say. It's important. What people say, do you miss being in politics? I say, I miss making real decisions. There's something Mm -hmm. about being at the center of the action, and if you think, that you would exercise power intelligently, mm-hmm. fairly, and in the national interest. Why shouldn't you be the one to have it? Because mm-hmm. somebody's going to have it. It exists, mm-hmm. and somebody's going to be making decisions that affect you. Mm-hmm. And who are they listening to? And how wise are they? And how self-interested mm-hmm. are they? You know, and are they going to dismantle all the environmental regulations to make their rich, uh, you know, corporate buddies happy, mm-hmm. or are they going to think about the future? of all the children in society and to try and create an environment in which people will be able to be healthy and grow up and be productive citizens. Um, You know, those are the questions because people are making those decisions. Every day. So let's shift to the Club of Madrid. Why were you a founding member of that? Well, the Club of Madrid actually grew up out of a conference that was held in Madrid in October of 2001, and I was a fellow of something called the Gorbachev Foundation of North America, which had been created in, in Boston, and it was uh, it looked at issues of economic reform, and Mikhail uh-huh. Gorbachev had been involved in, in sort of as a patron of it. And one of our members was from Spain, and he, and he wanted to have a meeting in Spain. And I was asked what I thought of that, and I said, I think that's great. But rather than talk about economic reform, why don't we talk about something in which Spain has a wonderful history, and that is democratic transition and consolidation. Because I had been to Spain in the time of Franco, and Mm, its democratic transition was very successful. So we had this remarkable conference, and first of all, when 9-11 happened, we thought, oh, gosh, there's the end of our conference. But actually, if anything, people were more committed to coming. They thought it was very Mm. important. So it was an amazing meeting in Madrid that brought together experts from around the world, but it also brought together 34 current and former heads of state and government. And the dialogue between the current and former leaders was very interesting because the former leaders could be very candid. You know, we weren't running for anything anymore. We were out of power. and We could say everything that we thought. And for current leaders, being able to talk to people who'd been there, done that, and understood what they were dealing with in their countries was very valuable. So we thought maybe there would be a value in creating an organization of mm-hmm. former, credible former presidents and prime ministers who could make themselves available to advise. We were thinking mm-hmm. mostly then doing peer-to-peer advice. So at the final plenary of the big conference I proposed the motion that we created that we call it the Club of Madrid because our main uh, funder was, was in mm-hmm. Madrid and actually the King and Queen of Spain were at this final plenary And um, but also because, so it looked like this would be where we, we could actually Created, mm-hmm. but because Madrid represented a country that had, had had a very successful transition from dictatorship to democracy. So that's how it was created. And we were at that time, I think at the early time, we, we our first incarnation, about 34 members. And I was the acting president when we started because Fernando Rica Cardoso of Brazil agreed to be our president, but he wasn't out of office until 2003. So I was the acting president as we incorporated under Spanish law, signed all the mm-hmm. documents and stuff. And then uh, he became president and I was vice president and then people were concerned about uh, how the organization was being run and that person who was running it didn't know what they were doing, blah, blah, blah. So I was prevailed upon. I said, I don't think a member should be secretary general, but Mm -hmm. I'll come for three years and Mm -hmm. get the organization up and running and then I'm back to just being a member. So it got, got up and running, and it's since it's had very good mm-hmm. secretaries-general, former diplomats, and the current uh, secretary-general came up through the ranks, which is outstanding. And um, we are now over 100 members. I think we're sort of mm-hmm. we may over 110 members now, I think. So we're the largest forum of its kind, and we have people from as many parts of the world as you can. I mean, there are some places where there aren't democracies, so they don't produce former democratic leaders. But um, and our members are quite remarkable. A few of them now, our original members are, are getting older, are not so active. So they vary in their activity. But they love to be useful. So what we found is, for example, we have an incredible convening power. We just had a, a, a policy dialogue, uh, our, one of our annual meetings uh, on uh, the, the uh, digital transformation and artificial intelligence. Mm, and that's we a topic I speak on often. And democracy, and because uh, mm-hmm. our, our focus is democracy. And we had outstanding speakers and mm-hmm. really, really amazing discussions, etc. And so experts like to come and work with us because they know first of all that the quality will be very high
0: mm-hmm. and
3: that they will have this interaction also with the former leaders who have very interesting perceptions apropos mm-hmm. of actually making policy and, and mm-hmm. using these in governance and that we are able to disseminate the results of what we do.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: we've, our convening power been great. We do missions around the world Uh, with countries and helping them uh, develop their democracies. A lot of stuff on the advancement of women. We did a project on women and peace and security in the Horn of Africa, where we worked with a network of women in the Horn of Africa. And uh, Mary Robinson and I kicked it off, but many of our male members got involved with these Mm -hmm. women. And what you find is, First of all, we trained them, we gave them lots of Mm capacity-building workshops and things Mm -hmm. like that. But if you are going to meet with the foreign minister of your country to try and argue that women need to be in the post-conflict negotiations, if the former prime minister of Norway is sitting next to you, or the former president of Colombia is sitting next to you, it's a kind of a safe space, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to give you a hard time. And we also find that sometimes you have value just by showing up because people feel that if you, given who you are, think what they're doing is important, then it really gives them encouragement. So sometimes we go for the specific knowledge we can share, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's the symbolic importance of our being there and being supportive, sometimes it's our convening power to bring together people who will come when they see this list of people who are uh, on the the letterhead inviting them to come and they see how, how serious we are. So it's been a very successful Uh, organization and uh, we just was our 18th uh, General Assembly in Madrid Mm -hmm. this last week and uh, uh, it's been really delightful and I think again that that there are a lot of former leaders and and, and democracies produce former leaders because they Mm -hmm. turn over their governments Mm -hmm. and when you've done that you know some people just want to you know go off and make money Mm -hmm. and do things and uh, and that's fine Mm -hmm. but for many leaders The idea of continuing to be useful Mm -hmm. and to share what they know is incredibly rewarding. So as we come into
1: the last five minutes of the interview, and as you're talking about leaders who want to continue to contribute, you seem like you epitomize exactly that. What's next for you?
3: Well, um, I'm actually, I I spent four years creating the Peter Lawhey Leadership College at the Mm -hmm. University of Alberta, which was very exciting. It's a program for third and fourth year students, what Americans would call juniors and seniors, and it was interdisciplinary. And uh, this is not the time to explain all the details, but it was very rewarding to do that. And I had taught years before at the Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School when it Mm -hmm. first opened, and that was my first exposure to people who did leadership as an academic pursuit, Mm -hmm. and very interesting. So I still do a lot of thinking about leadership, but I'm trying to pull back because my very long-suffering husband, I'm married to a wonderful artist named Hershey Felder, who is a concert pianist, playwright, and actor, and does wonderful plays about composers, and he's very successful. But when he's performing, he's doing eight shows a week, and if I'm not there, he can't just sort of hop on a plane and come and see me. So... Mm -hmm. um, he was long suffering during those four years when we were not together as much as we would have liked. Now we're spending much more time together, and I'm very happy. Um, and I sit on a corporate board of a biotech company, but what I am actually doing is revving myself up to write a book. <laughs> and the working title is called "Is Is Being Female," and it's a wide-ranging exploration of the reality of being female. And I'm hoping it will be it will it, it will include. Uh, observations from my own life, but also mm-hmm. many other areas of the female experience that I think are important and uh, informative and provocative. Mm-hmm. And I hope it will be a book that women uh, will find helpful, mm-hmm. um, energizing, surprising perhaps, but that is something that men could also read too, to understand what it means to be female. Uh, I was going to say, what what is the message you want
1: women to take away, but also our male allies, because well, they really are, our best men are our biggest allies. Yeah. And,
3: and I think that is very important. You know, I think it's, uh, the advancement of women is not the, the uh, diminution of men at all. And most women who have achieved important things will, will be able to identify men who believed in them. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always say it's not men against women, it's the women and men who get it. Mm-hmm. Really to Against the ones who, the don't. Women and men who don't get it, and that includes mm-hmm. w- women too. Mm-hmm. So men, men are very much our allies, and, and we have a lot to learn from them. You know, when men are comfortable and effective in using power, we have to see how they do it, and they are often very mm-hmm. good at connecting people and not being afraid to pick up the phone and you know helping people and whatever. I mean, they mm-hmm. they use that in a way that seems natural to them. And women are often diffident about that. So there's a lot that we can learn from men. But I think there's also so much that we have to unlearn. Mm. That there's so many things that we think are so that are not. And the New York Times, a year or so ago, started a new feature in its obituary column called Overlooked No More, where they said that since they'd started doing obituaries in 1850, everything, most of the articles were about white men. And they realized that there were so many lives that should have been written about and celebrated that weren't. So every week they have several articles in the Overlook No More thing, where they talk about amazing women who've done amazing things, Mm -hmm. people of color, people who just were not written about, Mm
2: -hmm. but that
3: we have a right to know about. We are impoverished when we don't know. When I look at the film Hidden Figures and I think, we need to know about these women, that these three brilliant, not just women, but African-American women, doubly excluded, Mm-hmm. Uh, that they were head and shoulders above the men they were working mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And, and we as women are cheated when we don't know this, but men are cheated. Mm-hmm. If we allow men to tootle along thinking that they really are better, that they are the default category, that they are the repository of most of the smarts, of course they'll be jerks. Of course they'll be impossible. And they will be impoverished by not being part of a society where mm-hmm. smart women... We're smart, non-prototypical leaders, whether it's people of color or people with disability—all people who who we get overlooked. If they're not able to contribute, then the society is poorer, and we're also diminished and become kind of small people. When Mm -hmm. we sort of go, "Oh, you know, people aren't like me," and you know, yeah, the whining is just not. So it's the, the the empowerment that knowledge brings when we understand that talent and ability and character reposed in both sexes, or all sexes, because we have
2: variations on it now,
3: now. all sexes and all races and all backgrounds. And if we don't understand that and see that, we're Mm -hmm. really headed for disaster, because that exclusion will impoverish us, but it is also incredibly unjust. And if we have a society founded on injustice and exclusion, I, I don't know how... How we survive, because that becomes something that erodes and and erodes from within the the quality of our social life together. So, I don't believe women are better than men. I don't believe, uh, you know, I I think white supremacy is a hoax and is is the stupidest thing, uh, aside from being dangerous. Um, But I think that all of us bring something very important to the human condition. And my goal in life is to empower everyone, but particularly women, <laughs>
1: to make their contribution. The Right Honorable Kim Campbell, thank you. I love the message, valuing everyone, creating justice across our communities, and working together, as you have modeled so brilliantly, to make the world a place that we all want to live in, and that we all have a place to thrive, irrespective of how we look, or who we are, or the talents that we are gifted with at birth. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh,
3: where would someone find out more about your work? I have a website, kimcampbell.com, it's the easiest thing to remember, and I get messages through there, but um, uh, I post as much as I can, but there's Mm -hmm. videos and all sorts of things if you want to know about me, kimcampbell.com. So young female potential
1: political candidates can also reach out to you?
3: Yes, and I have a memoir, uh, Time and Chance, uh, which is uh, available on Kindle or hard copy on Amazon. Beautiful. Thank you so much.
2: day, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Maureen had with one of our ILA thought leaders, and we look forward to having you join us throughout this 15 podcast series on leadership during these turbulent times.
1: Thank you for joining us at the International Leadership Association Conference Interview Series, recorded live in Ottawa, Canada. We'd love to hear your feedback. And part of the feedback that really inspires us is letting us know how these interviews have impacted you personally and your organization. Please reach out to me at info at innovateleader.com or on LinkedIn. Connect with me as Maureen Metcalf.